I'm digging for feeling. And when I hit the feeling, that's when I get the shiver, kind of like sent a jolt through me. Something about writing the book made me realise that I needed a drastic change in my life. That's just called relating to people. And then maybe writers are the people who can't do that in a normal way and have to do it through writing things. She's like, this is quite personal, Amy. Are you, are you sure you want to publish this? It's a miracle to me that I've managed to finish anything, let alone now, like six books. Yeah, they exist, don't they? So I must have done them. <laughs> Welcome to In Haste. I'm Alice Vincent. And I'm Charlotte Runcie. In this series, we speak to authors about the challenges of writing their books and putting them out into the world. And we talk about the matter of writing when you have a real life to live. This is where we talk about how great books really get written. Alice, hello. Your shed's looking very tidy. Thank you, Charlotte. I have tidied the shed. I've tidied it because I have a ludicrous deadline at the end of the month and kind of tens of thousands of words to write in a matter of days, not even weeks. Oh my God. And so you know what I should be doing with that time is writing some of those words. But instead I was like, gonna tidy the shed. <laughs> we need Oliver Burtman back to tell us off or to just, or to forgive us. <laughs> I know, I know, but there is there there is logic behind it actually because I find it so much easier to just crack on when I have a clear desk, um, and what you can't see is that in behind the camera and behind the mic are just white walls. I don't, you know, there's lots of took going on behind, but I really need a kind of a blank space, Taylor Swift style. Can you tell us what your big scary deadline is? I am filing half of a manuscript <gasps> to my agent to see if there is some international interest in it. That's exciting. There has historically been international interest in Alice Vincent. <laughs> there has, but I feel like I'm Robbie Williams and I can never break America. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just there with swing while you're winning and no one cares. No, I think Beatlemania calls for you as it did not for him. <laughs> Time can tell, but if we don't have the word half manuscript written, it's never going to happen. Oh, so, keep yeah. going. That's me. How are you doing? What's going on with you? Oh, I'm fine. I have received the editorial letter for my novel, which is the big scary letter that tells you everything. <laughs> thing that's wrong with your novel that you need to fix before anyone will print it so I have three editors who bought my novel um one in the UK one in America and one in Canada they are my English language editorial team a sort of triumvirate of editors and they have colluded together they had a zoom chat that I wasn't part of <laughs> I actually was fine with not being part of it where they discussed it all and then they sent me one big joint letter and it is a huge you know seven page letter of things that need changing plus the manuscript with line inline comments and things which is terrifying um but good also quite kind of cathartic and quite like yes this is the work that needs to be done need to do the work I've printed it all out I've bought some new highlighters I'm gonna take it all apart and put it back together again better hopefully so I'm trying to maintain that spirit of optimism rather than fear and <laughs> the hope that the book will be much better for it. well the, the certainty actually that the book will be much better for having all of that input and attention um but it's quite a process as you well know well the thing is yes I do know and I remember when I received my structural edit on Rootbound and and you know you had familiarity with that editor and I was in I was in the books cupboard at work when I read this email which is the worst possible thing and then I text you and I was like my structural edits come in and you just replied saying have you got ice cream? <laughs> I can't 
believe you and remember. I replied saying, no, I'm in the books cupboard. And you're like, oh, shit. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Shouldn't have gone to the books cupboard to have a cry, but I did. Oh, yeah. Well, you need ice cream. Did you have ice cream? I had a tiramisu. <laughs> Oh, she's so chic. 1970s Italian dessert par excellence. (laughs) Anyway, enough about my tiramisu editing. I mean, I could sit and talk about your tiramisu all day, Charlotte, but I do think we should get on to our guest, who is Thomas Morris, writer of short stories, former editor of the prestigious Irish literary magazine, The Stinging Fly, and one of Granta's best young British novelists. Charlotte, you read Thomas's new book of short stories, Open Up, last year, I think. Yes. And then I loved it so much that I basically just forced you to read it as well. What did you think? I'm dying to know. It has been the book that I have been saying to people, this is the best book I read this year. And I still think about The Seahorses, which we will all hear about shortly, quite often. And I loved our conversation with Thomas. And I just think his stories feel so fresh and striking and real even when they're written in this amazingly surreal and destabilizing way often. So for example, his story about seahorses that you mentioned, Abacariad, which is kind of the centerpiece of Open Up. I just found it like nothing I'd ever read before. It was so brave. It reminded me of Italo Calvino, who's one of my favorite writers of short stories. And I was so excited to get to speak to him about his process and his experience and and his writing. Alice, have you ever written short stories? No, I have not. But As we posted about a few weeks ago on the Inhay Substack, 2024 is going to be the year that I write fiction, which right now I can't even say without laughing (laughs) because I I feel a bit like when your dad says that he's going to join a band or something. It just feels completely out of character and slightly pretentious. Hey, hey, some of us write fiction. (laughs) No, because for me though, because I just look at everyone else doing it and they make it so effortless and, and I don't think I can at all and that's not even false modesty that's just raw terrified truth but you know when we had dinner a few months back uh I was like I want to sort of write this novel and I don't know how and we had a bit of back and forth and you advised me to write and I quote a vibey short story (laughs) as if I would know how to do that but actually vibes or no working maybe to a short story has been a really useful prompt for me and I have started thinking about one So yeah, now it's out in the ether and you can all hold me accountable. I can't wait to read it. Have you written short stories? Yeah, I have. I have written short stories. I've had one published in a literary journal, but other than that, I've had short stories rejected by every reputable short story magazine in the English language world. (laughs) Um, I don't think it's my forte, but then actually, I think that perhaps I just haven't been doing it long enough because short stories they have that deceptive thing where they almost look like they're going to be easier than a novel because it's only what 2000 words how hard could that be right but actually so much needs to happen in a short story they need to be so well worked and they're very condensed and that's very very difficult to achieve you actually with a novel you've got space to play with things introduce different characters and settings and, and themes whereas in a short story you have a limited amount of space and time and it's I think it is harder so in some ways it's a good start for writing fiction because it feels less daunting but in other ways to master it is a a whole other thing well this is why I've not thought to do one but one person who definitely has mastered the form I think is our guest today Thomas Morris Uh, as always in our conversation today there may be some swearing and some discussion of adult themes so do be aware if that's not your thing so let's hear our conversation with Thomas Morris (laughs) 
Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to see you. How's your week going? It's going very well, by which I mean I've seen a lot of people. I've gotten out of the house. Very little writing done. That was actually going to be my first question to you, though, is how much writing have you been doing this week? So maybe my question should be how much writing would you normally have been doing? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so like I wrote the first book in about two years and the second book took eight years. And I feel like I'm starting again. And just a question for me is like, how regularly should I write? How regularly do I want to write? And also, how do I balance writing with like having a life and not constantly feeling in debt to the page? I would love to just kind of refresh my relationship with the writing to come back to the real reason why I started to write in the first place, which like when I was like 19 and I moved away from Wales to Ireland and I had a computer. It was like the first time I had a computer that wasn't like my family's. Whatever I wrote on there, I knew it would be private. And it kind of became a way for me to kind of process emotional experiences and kind of put an aesthetic shape onto it. And I think one of the things about publishing, for me at least, is that like it felt like a loss of innocence in a way, thinking about the external part of it, thinking about the business of publishing and thinking about money or thinking about how long it is between books. So now um, I've kind of satisfied the two book deal that I signed nine years ago and I'm thinking, okay, can I just come back to writing when I need to write? So just to zoom out a little bit, we should talk about your newest book, Open Up. It has this kind of hands dirty emotional honesty and realism to it that's combined with a sense of otherworldly magic which I just found completely beguiling and thinking about I mean you say it took you eight years to write it how did you come to write the stories in the book and bring them together can you take us through that yeah so I should say so I published my first book in 2015 which was also a book of stories and at that time I was editor of the stinging fly magazine in Dublin so I was probably reading a thousand stories a year in, in, in the submissions. And so I published a book in 2015 and then I found by 2016, a year later, I'd done no writing at all, really. I was so immersed in the editing work and immersed in other people's writing. I think I was also using that as a bit of an excuse to not do my own work. So I made the decision to move back to Wales. I moved in with my mother, who now lives on a farm on a mountain in South Wales. And I decided to go back because in the summer holidays, I'd always kind of go back and do some good work. And I thought, oh, that'd be great. If I go back for a year, I'll get a book done. But what I hadn't taken in, into consideration was what it's like to be on a farm in South Wales on a mountain living with my mother when I can't drive and I'm 30. <laughs> and I went a little bit mad. I got a little bit withdrawn. And my mother isn't blameless here. Because <laughs> I remember when she read my first book, when it was in proof form before it was even published, she said to me, I'm very proud of you for having published this book, but I think that you know more. And I was like, oh, you could have just stopped at the proud bit. (laughs) (laughs) So what did she mean by that? Yeah, and that's what I was kind of grappling with for the next couple of years is like, what is that more? And I think she felt that I had more understanding of people. I had more emotional intelligence, perhaps, but I'd experienced a richer kind of vein of life than I was necessarily getting on a page. And I remember saying to her, I was like, well, this is the hardest I've ever worked at anything, this book of stories. Like, I'm proud of myself for having, like, surpassed what I thought was my potential. And I felt like I'd reached a ceiling. I was like, I don't know where to go from here. But I knew or I had an intuition of what she was getting at was in some way related to kind of the restrictions that I was putting on myself for a short story. 
in trying to write the perfect short story in some way or trying to write a good short story. And they were kind of like, I would see aesthetic restrictions to that when I was like staying within realism. And like, well, I'll have some dialogue and I'll have some action, but I'll have some dialogue because that was how <laughs> that was in the stories I was seeing. And then within that, I wasn't getting into the weird parts. One of the advantages for me of like taking that time out to write, I'd won a couple of prizes. So I had a little bit of money. I had like £9,000. And I, and I was like, right, I'm not going to work this year. I'm just going to live on the farm, £9,000, and just see how I get on. And I fell back in love with reading. And the writers I was found myself drawn to, like uh, Clarissa Lispector, Franz Kafka, Virginia Woolf, I can see now in retrospect what the attraction was, was the interior realm, be that feeling or be that consciousness, thought. And that reading was bringing me into my own inner life. I should say at this point, I was 30, 31, and I didn't know I had an inner life. <laughs> I'd already published a book. <laughs> and I didn't really know what people were talking about when I talked about an inner life. I was living so far from my feelings. But there was something about the permission I found in, in those authors that I started interrogating my own internal life. And it, and it started from a point of view of just trying to write out the feelings of well, myself or the character. I mean, it was hard to know which was which, <laughs> but I was starting to pull things out and I got stuck. And I spent like kind of like a, a long time like lying down, really, just kind of <laughs> feeling my feelings for the first time. And then one day, I, I don't know where it came from, but just <laughs> in my mind, a little seahorse kind of crept up to me and said, write a story about me. And I found myself writing a story about seahorses and I knew as much or as little about seahorses as I imagine most people do, which is, but it's for males who have the babies who get pregnant. And there was something really freeing about it, about getting into some of those feelings that I was trying to write about directly from a skew. And by taking myself by surprise, I ended up getting in, 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 into some of the kind of like oceanic feelings <laughs> I'd been kind of suppressing for about 30 years. I'm so glad you brought up the seahorses because I know that Charlotte and I really love the seahorses and <laughs> we have about six seahorse-based questions. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I should say there was a period when I wrote the story I was something at least to myself I was something of a seahorse expert. I mean the questions aren't actually about the seahorses. Oh, that is a shame because okay. I'd love, I would love to talk about. <laughs> it's not just a trivia round, <laughs> a quick fire round but yeah there is a lot of human emotional realism and seahorse zoological realism in there how did you balance that realism and the strangeness in the writing like, were there times when it felt too seahorsey or times when it felt too human i mentioned earlier that the book took eight years to write but if i'm more accurately it kind of took six years to write and in that time i was drafting an awful lot i become really obsessed with drafting so the seahorse story took two years to write Another story in the collection, Passenger, took four years. There's a vampire story, that took two years. So these were a long time in the making. I mean, some of that is just about the calibrating, as you say, making it more seahorsey, less seahorsey. And I think it's the case for anyone who does research, at least when I hear kind of historical novelists talking. They say, you know, you do so much research. Or, well, in this instance, I did a lot of research and I really wanted to get it all in. I really wanted to explain <laughs> kind of like how the gas bladder in a seahorse works. And that's fascinating. Or seahorses don't have stomachs. Like that's why we need to eat 3,000 times a day. And at some point I'd go, right, but is this <laughs> necessary to the plot? 
why would the narrator, like recounting his family trauma, now tell us about, yeah, the gas bladder? <laughs> what became useful though, within the research was say, I couldn't find, for example, like a definitive answer to are seahorses monogamous? There's a lot of websites will tell you they are, then other websites will tell you they're not. And obviously someone out there is really invested in <laughs> the answer one way or another because there's a lot of debate. And it may just be that some species are monogamous and some aren't. Uh, so then that became a way in for me. This idea of what if you had some seahorses who decided to be monogamous and then one of them broke the deal in some way. Or similarly, when I was doing the research, I discovered that in, in the seahorse world, the males keep to one territory, the females keep to another. And then they meet in a mutual third territory to mate. And I kind of took like a dollop of poetic license and enlarged the scale. And then that gave me the place in the story where the title is drawn from, which is Abba Cariad. Abba being the Welsh word for kind of confluence of water and Cariad being the Welsh word for love, if you spell it with a C, but I went a bit Kafka and gave it a K. And then suddenly I had story. I had somewhere for these seahorses to go. And that felt fitting both for the seahorses, because they would need to do that if they're going to go mate. Then also on the human level, this idea of leaving the family to go out into the world. This idea of individuation. How do you become yourself in the family? And again, like I think if I'd sat down and if I knew in the known ahead of time what I was doing, I think it would have been really, really shit. <laughs> and I can attest to that because I got plenty of really shit stuff on my computer where I decided ahead of time what it would be about. But I just kind of, I had to remain alert to what was coming up. And, you know, it went through so many drafts and there's a lot of wrong turns where they went very seahorsey or very humany. But um, but I just felt, I was like, oh no, there's something real here. And even if it's required me to go to a surreal place to get it, I think I've tapped into some emotional or psychological realism. And the test for me is always, do I feel something when I'm writing it and when I read over it? And always at the end of the story, I'm for myself, I'm like, am I getting the shivers? And I've become to think or understand that it's possibly because I'm hitting, I picture myself kind of out in the garden with a shovel and I'm digging for feeling. And when I hit the feeling, that's when I get the shiver, kind of like sent a jolt through me. I've decided, well, if I'm getting something from it, well, at least, you know, that's important for myself, but there's a chance someone else will get something from it too. There are a lot of slim literary novellas being published at the moment. Did you consider publishing it just as a standalone book? It was on my mind. And one part of it was, and I might be contradicting something I just said like two minutes ago, but just the idea of going around for you talking about that book <laughs> just talking about <laughs> seahorses I was like I don't know if I want to get into that <laughs> um, and, I, and I think for a long time I had I'd have these stories and I put them all into a document and I was just waiting for something to click and then the moment it actually kind of clicked for me when I started taking stories out of it so when I went down from eight stories to five stories stories which didn't seem to kind of um, have the same colours or the same tune or I'm reaching for metaphors here, but like um, stories that didn't kind of sing together. And then once I had it down to five, I was like, ah, my senses 
the other stories benefit from being beside Abakariad and Abakariad benefits from being around the others. But like it's astonishing, and I've seen this both for myself and and in my day job, like working with writers, publishing stories and publishing story collections. When you put stories beside each other, they start talking to one another in a way you can't necessarily anticipate. And it makes sense because it's a body of work. I mean, for me, it's a body of work that comes out of a certain period in my life when I'm asking a set of questions which are recurring across the collection, um, the collection, the suite, that they would speak to each other. But um, I couldn't have anticipated it. Yeah, I mean, to talk about something that isn't seahorses for a moment, all the stories in Open Up feel like they are quite strongly about masculinity in particular. And um, there are complex relationships between fathers and sons, quite a lot of male anxiety, including about status and young men struggling in romantic relationships. What drew you to writing about those themes and bringing them together, do you think? (laughs) Now I say that question, that's quite rude. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like asking <laughs> how are your relationships tom uh yeah <laughs> it's not what i'm asking no, no, i no, promise no. um i was just i think i was writing and i often do like from a state of perplexity and i only really know what i think or i feel when writing i mentioned earlier kind of discovering my inner life and part of that discovery was from reading an incredible book uh, called Talking to Women by Nell Dunn. Um, it's a, I don't know if you know of it, it's a collection of conversations that, that Nell Dunn had in 1964. Um, I think she was 28. She published a book. It just got married or maybe she just had a kid. And she was wondering like, what is my life going to be as a, as a female writer, as a mother? Will I be able to do these things? Can I be a, a wife and a writer? Um, so once a month, she sat down with a different pal over a bottle of wine and they just talked these things out. And the book is nine conversations. And one of the conversations is with a woman who works in a butterbean factory down the road. And the next conversation is with Edna O'Brien. So there's a range. And I remember I remember where I was. I was in Cork reading it when I was teaching at the university. I would have been 31, 32. And I remember reading these conversations and being astounded by the emotional fluency these women could articulate their inner lives like describe conflicted feelings, but also this idea that they were helping each other navigate their internal lives. And I was comparing that to my own life as a as a young man and comparing those conversations with ones I had with my friends. And I felt a bereft. I felt a sense of grieving, actually, but it was something I hadn't had. And like I, I always tell this story as as a bit of a joke, but I remember in my early 20s, after like a breakup, a friend of mine came, he picked me up, he took me to his house. We played FIFA in his bedroom for four hours on the PlayStation. And then he and then he brought me home. And I said, all right, you know, all right, yeah. I was like, yeah, thank you. He's like, have a good one. And that was it. And that was going to be emotional support. And it was really helpful in the moment. <laughs> but it didn't get me any any further in understanding kind of like how the breakup happened, like what I had been like about relationship, you know. It, it led to no more kind of like self-reflection or understanding. And so I think after reading my book, I really wanted to do something similar. It, it occurred to me to maybe go do a podcast series or to do a book of interviews with my friends. But rather than do that, I well, I just started with conversations. I just started asking 
questions that have the word feel in them. How do you feel when? What do you think if? And I and in some cases I was talking to both my friends and their wives. And I think it was partly because I kind of wanted to understand, I was like, well, how are we meant to be doing this? How are we meant to be living? How are we meant to be relating to one another? And I sought out therapy in the end. And I was like one of the first of my friends, of my male friends to go to therapy, like all my female friends have gone to therapy. And I suddenly found I was able to at least start to describe some of my inner life. And in doing that, I have a conversation with my friends, they started opening up to me. And it's not the case then that like these stories are like a report of those conversations, but that they were kind of the things that are in the stories were my kind of ongoing concerns at the time. You're not really on social media. Is that a decision related to your writing? Oh yeah. 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 It, yeah. It drove me mad. I, I remember when I was living on the farm and I was on Twitter and I was starting to enjoy my own voice. I was building a following and one day I'd gotten into kind of taking walks because just to kind of get out of my stuckness so I I would take these walks through the woods and a line came to me and I thought well that'd make a really good tweet and I caught myself I thought no I'm fucked I'm fucked if that is how how I'm going to like use my brain um, rather than the instinct be that would be a good a good line to start a story so I kind of had to come off it and I have a real dysfunctional relationship with the internet anyway. I would say I probably have an internet addiction. And one of the things I've come to, the context I understand it in is like the way I use the internet to kind of soothe anxiety, to soothe kind of like if I'm feeling like an uncomfortable feeling when I just kind of will go onto YouTube and I'll watch a video and I'll watch a reel and I can lose hours. Whereas if I could just... <laughs> step away and I don't know, do some breathing or go for a walk and I can come back to myself and I could see in ways in which I was using Twitter as just another way of yeah kind of getting away from my feelings but if anything it made them worse because I just felt it was making me very angry. If social media is among the things that stops you from writing uh, or stopped you from writing what is it that keeps you going? Uh, reading reading without, without a doubt. If I'm not writing or if I feel like I'm suffering some kind of block, it's because I have a reader's block to begin with. And I think about what brings me back to the page is reading and something I started to do on the farm, which I hadn't done before, was get up early. <laughs> like, and that didn't happen immediately. Like for a couple of years there, well, my first book, for example, I wrote between the hours of like 11 p.m. and 3 a.m., I was kind of like tuning in to be like early hours loneliness, kind of what is life. And I did that for a little bit for a couple of years with stories in this book. And then I got very down, very kind of distant from myself. <laughs> so I was like, right, this needs to change. I started going to bed early. And then I'd wake up maybe half six, quarter seven, and read for an hour. And it was extraordinary the difference in my mind if I began reading rather than on the internet. And it was like, my mind was like a calm body of water, which was of use to me then the rest of the day. It improved my concentration. And there was something about this, yeah, there's something about reading that for me kind of puts a frame on my own experiences. I, I remember reading Mrs. Dalloway for the next two weeks. I felt like I was on drugs. 
I was seeing the world. <laughs> I, was walk, I was going through Caffilia. I was on the bus. Everything seemed so beautiful in this kind of like Wolfian way. And I it brought meaning to kind of these everyday experiences of mine that I would probably just gloss over. And I had this feeling quite recently reading Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. I was like, my own life started making more sense to me. And there are very few parallels between my life and the character in that <laughs> in in that novel, but there was something about the intensity of attention, I suppose, to the inner life or and to people and to relationships, that it just brings me back to myself. And that's one of the things I often think about is in like if I'm not writing, it's because I'm estranged from myself in some way. And writing and reading is a way for me to come back to myself. That conversation was such a pleasure. I genuinely felt like I had a massage or something by the end of it. Yeah, Tom was just dunking biscuits into his tea for most of it. I think it was actually the same cup of tea for the entire hour. So it was a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much to Thomas Morris for speaking to us. Open Up is published by Faber. Alice, can I just read you one of the messages from our lovely community at the In Haste Substack? You certainly can. This was a great one that caught my eye from Charlotte at Rue, who says, What stopped me writing this week? Nothing. I've written daily, but haven't written any of it well, thanks to being 13 weeks postpartum and feeling like I'm wading through mud when trying to structure sentences. What's kept me going is a love of the craft and a desire to get back a piece of who I was before I was mummy. Yeah, that resonates so much. I wrote persistently in the weeks after giving birth and it felt like something I couldn't not do and I think it's why I didn't have an identity crisis I have many other crises <laughs> I'm having a crisis most days but um I I don't think I had an identity crisis because I kept writing but I definitely felt really inexplicable weird guilt over writing like I was sort of failing at doing the cozy motherhood thing because I still had this urge to get to my laptop I wrote when my first child was a baby I wrote my non-fiction book Salt on Your Tongue while my little my first one was was just after she was born and actually because that book was about motherhood and pregnancy and um, having a baby it felt so I couldn't think of anything else at the time so it was just I wrote every day with quite often with the baby in a sling while standing with at my laptop yeah Um, and then just writing yeah. about everything I was going through. It was very raw. That's a very raw book as a result because I was just recording everything that was happening straight, which was crazy in retrospect. <laughs> anyway, if writing about writing is your thing, please do come and join in our conversation on the Inhay Substack, where we've also got exclusive new writing, bonus podcast content, and lots more, as well as a very welcoming community of readers and writers. Go to inhaste.substack.com or check the show notes to find out more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you can. Next time, our guest is the fantasy author, Sunny Dean. There's lots of novels about like heroes and kings and they're cool and I read a lot of them and, and they're fun. But I wanted to explore, I guess, the people who don't get remembered in fantasy books, the people having their own quiet personal apocalypse who are very small and invisible. In Haste is produced by Holly Fisher for Hasty Productions. Our music is by Maria Chiara Argero with graphic design by Alicia Fernandez. Mm-hmm.